This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. You can find us on frequency 9625 kHz in the 31-meter band to Southern Africa and on 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Spomela Lezondi and I'm with Joala Natulo with Sani Matabula and Natuchimane. Your top stories. Nigeria's President Mohamedou Buhari is hosting his West African counterparts in a meeting aimed at resolving the political impasse in Gambia. Elections and infrastructure development are said to dominate the news in Kenya this year as the country heads to the polls. But first, let's get the news from Joala Netulo. Thank you, Spumalele. Good afternoon. South Africa's ruling ANC has berated its Women's League for endorsing Kosazana Lamini Zuma as its presidential candidate. Party spokesperson Zizi Kodwa has labelled the move premature, divisive and in defiance of the National Executive Committee. The ANC Women's League announced on the eve of the party's 105th birthday celebrations that it would back outgoing African Union Commission Chair Lamini Zuma to replace President Jacob Zuma, Labour Federation Kasatu earlier endorsed Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa to take over the reins. Ivory Coast Prime Minister Daniel Kablan Duncan has resigned and dissolved the government. Duncan had been expected to stand down on Saturday but held off after dissident soldiers took over army bases in cities across the West African country on Friday demanding bonus payouts. It took 48 hours to reach the deal to quell the revolt. President Alassane Quattara won the December 18 parliamentary polls but legislative elections are usually followed by a change of government as a matter of procedure. The resignations paved the way for the implementation of measures contained in a new constitution. Foreign shop owners at Kuruman in South Africa's Northern Cape province say they have lost over $725,000 in stock after residents looted and torched shops. A mob attack of uh, a mob attack Rather, a mob attacked over 50 foreigners and looted 26 shops, accusing shop owners of fatally stabbing a 16-year-old boy who had allegedly stolen meat. 36-year-old Hassan Khan says police did nothing. We feel very bad and other things. It's like they just come and rob and go. And police, they just come and see it and tell the community just take the stock. They didn't help us. Nigerian national Charles Chukwere Okopi has abandoned his bail application in the Clarkstorp Masters Court in South Africa. Okopi is being charged with human trafficking. This after the Hawks clamped down on a brothel. 26 females, some as young as 14, were rescued from the house in December. 
And finally, a cold snap gripping Europe has killed 10 more people in Poland, stranded thousands in Turkey and brought fresh misery for migrants. Double-digit sub-zero temperatures have claimed more than 30 lives. Many of them migrants or homeless people found frozen to death. Poland's Center for National Security says the number of hypothermia victims has reached 65 since November. Heavy snowfall in Turkey's main city, Istanbul, has paralyzed traffic with uh, a strait close to ships and hundreds of flights cancelled. Well, that's a news update for Channel Africa. I'm Jolani Tulo. Thank you very much, Olane. 1704 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest and Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Let's start in Nigeria now, where President Mohamed Buhari is hosting his West African counterparts in a meeting aimed at resolving the political impasse in the Gambia. The West African Regional Bloc Economic Community of West African States, otherwise known as ECOWAS, has resorted to solving the crisis in the Gambia using peaceful mediation as opposed to military intervention. Kumbelo Munjalele has more. The Abuja meeting is a last-ditch effort by the West African leaders to try and resolve the political stalemate in the Gambia. The leaders expected to join President Buhari in a meeting to try and resolve the crisis are presidents of Liberia and Senegal, the vice president of Sierra Leone and former president of Ghana, John Dramani Mahama. At a recent meeting held in Accra, Ghana, on the sidelines of the inauguration of Ghana's newly elected president, Nana Akufo-Addo, the West African leaders expressed the readiness of the West African region to continue the pursuit of dialogue with the leaders of the Gambia. With calls having been made for a military intervention to resolve the crisis in Gambia, it remains to be seen whether only dialogue will be enough to ensure a peaceful transfer of power in the Gambia. Yaya Jame, who has led Gambia for 22 years, initially accepted his defeat by opposition leader Adama Baro in the December 1st election. But a week later, Jamey reversed his position, vowing to hang on to power despite a wave of regional and international condemnation. The regional body is closely monitoring proceedings in Gambia's Supreme Court, where President Yaya Jamey is challenging the poll result. The report by Channel Africa's Kumbelo Munjelele. Elections and infrastructure development will dominate the news in Kenya this year. President Uhuru Kenyatta, whose administration is battling voter discontent over runaway corruption, will be seeking his second and final term. Also expected to be on the ballot is former Prime Minister and Opposition Leader Raila Odinga. Opinion polls have put Kenyatta in the lead, but there are fears that last-minute amendments to the country's electoral laws may lead to violence in the East African country, as the opposition is already alleging plans to rig the polls. On the economic scene, Kenya will begin exporting oil in March, ahead of a nearby Uganda. Sarah Kimani takes a look at Kenya in 2017. 
Kenya will hold its general elections in August this year. The presidential ballot will be a hotly contested battle between incumbent President Uhuru Kenyatta Sasa mutakubali tuingie mwaka wa 2017 tukiwa na seeking a second and final term against the opposition. The opposition is currently working on a more united front led by former Prime Minister Raila Odinga of the Coalition for Reforms and Democracy called last year Code held protests to demand the ouster of the Electoral Commission, claiming it could not be trusted to hold a free and fair election. The opposition is once again preparing to take to the streets to demand that the president does not sign into law hurried amendments to the electoral law that will see the Electoral Commission revert to a manual backup to the electronic voting system. The opposition claims this is a ploy by the Kenyatta administration to rig the polls. Both Kenyatta and Odinga have pledged a violent free poll. In 2007, at least 1,500 people were killed following disputes over poll results. Kenya, like the rest of the region, is feeling the effects of climate change. Failure of last year's March to April long rains and the October to December short rains has left the country's granaries empty and low water levels in the East African nation's dams. The capital Nairobi is expected to begin water rationing as a result and the Kenya Red Cross Society has indicated that nearly 2 million people are faced with starvation. In March, Kenya will begin its ambitious plan to export oil. Although plans to build an oil pipeline on hold until August next year, the country will transport at least 2,000 barrels of oil a day from Trukana in the north of Kenya to an oil refinery in the port city of Mombasa. British company Talo Oil first struck the black gold in Kenya in 2012. Still on the economic front, the country's most expensive infrastructure project, the Chinese Finance Standard Gauge Railway Line, will begin operations in June this year. The first phase of the railway will run from Nairobi to Mombasa. The line will eventually connect Kenya to Uganda, the Democratic Republic of Congo, South Sudan and Rwanda. It is expected to reduce congestion on the roads as well as ease the movement of goods and passengers in the East African region. The African Development Bank has prospected an overall GDP growth of 6.4% for Kenya in 2016, bored by returns from infrastructure development. Sarah Kimani, Nairobi, Kenya. Your time is 17.10 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Spomile Lezondi and I'm with you until 20, until 1800 hours Central African Time rather. That is until 1800 hours Central African Time. The race to succeed South African President Jacob Zuma has begun in earnest with the ANC Women's League this past weekend, officially endorsing outgoing African Union Chairperson Dr. Ngozazana Tlamini Zuma as its candidate. The ANC Women's League announcement was made on the eve of the ANC's 105th birthday celebration in Orlando Stadium, where President Jacob Zuma called on members to refrain from mentioning names in the leadership battle. The ANC is set to elect a successor for Zuma at its national conference in December this year and its pick is likely to be the next president of the country. For a perspective on this, as economist who spoke to Daniel Silk, who is the director at the Political Futures Consultancy. Yeah, look, the gloves are off and the gloves really were off already at the end of last year when the Trade Union Federation, Kasatu, announced their intended backing of the Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa. 
So what we saw over the weekend was another major formation, the ANC Women's League, uh, declare their support, not surprisingly, for uh, Nkosazana Dlamini Zuma. Uh, look, this has gone against what the party bosses have asked for. They've asked, in fact, for the contestation uh, to be uh, put on the back burner until the end of the year when the actual elected conference takes place. What we now have, of course, are two heavyweight candidates, both starting to receive support from important uh, components of the ANC alliance. And this simply means that we are going to be uh, drawn into a very protracted 11-month leadership battle for succession within the ANC, which, of course, has its own uh, risks attached. Now, let's talk about um, the significance of um, uh, the uh, Women's League's endorsement of Gosses and Adlamini Zuma at this time. Look, the question is to what degree, to how much power does the Women's League have within the ANC? Remember, I think that we must look at the ANC as a a collective of any number of different uh, subsections and formations. Of course, there's the Women's League, there's the Youth League, there's the Communist Party, the Trade Unions, uh, there are various powerful regional entities uh, within the ANC, like the KwaZulu-Natal branch, like the Gauteng branch as well, the Premier League. All of these different factions uh, are competing for power and have access uh, to anoint the next successor to Jacob Zuma. Uh, So I think the Women's League is just one of these various uh, bodies, and any future president is going to have to cobble together a coalition of a variety of different uh, subsections of the ANC, the Women's League being one important component. Mm. Let's talk a bit about uh, that factionalism that um, uh, we've seen uh, descending upon um, the ruling party. Um, now, we know that uh, Kasatu had earlier endorsed uh, uh, Cyril Wamaposa as their candidate, um, and now we've seen the Women's League with Nkosas and Adlamini Zuma. Are we likely to see friction, you know, taking uh, center stage at this point? Well, I think we will see friction over the course of this year. This is a very heated uh, succession battle. It comes hot on the heel over the whole of last year, which was dominated really by intense factionism within the ANC, not necessarily about uh, uh, leadership candidates, but more about access to power and resources and the issues of state capture. All of those issues, I think, divided the ANC. This year, we're going to see divisions based more upon which camp is uh, competing for the presidency. Uh, but yes, I think we're going to see this uh, factionism uh, and uh, succession competition uh, really become the key feature of our politics over the next year. The question is, can the ANC manage this uh, in a way in which it doesn't upset the ordinary running of the party? Uh, if it is not managed properly, if it creates deep divisions within the ANC, we can well see further problems for Jacob Zuma and really for delivery within South Africa as the governing party just becomes so obsessed with its own leadership battle. So how this is really managed, if it can be managed, because I think uh, uh, sort of the genie is out of the bottle when it comes to all of these competing leadership Mm. candidates, and there may be more leadership candidates that haven't announced their uh, intention to stand Mm. yet. Mm. Um, This is going to be the real question for uh, the ruling party in the next few months. Mm. Now, Daniel, just before we let you go, I mean, the ANC um, was uh, dealt a huge blow um, at the local government elections where they were shocked about um, how the vote had turned out. Now, with all of this factionalism and uh, the friction that's taking place and, you know, um, uh, all the activity that's taking place within the party, um, in addition to some of the um, lack of confidence from people on the ground, what does this mean for the future of the party moving forward in your view? Look, the ANC is betting that a future leader, let us say a future leader is announced in December of this year, 
uh, that a future leader will have sufficient time over the 2018 and early 29 period to win back the confidence, certainly, of the majority of voters who felt alienated from the ANC and didn't even vote for the ANC in the last local government elections. So I think the ANC is sort of willing to uh, tread water this year as they battle through the succession race, but their hope is that, look, the next successor uh, to Jacob Zuma will be able to reboot and kickstart the party. Um, I think the ANC is taking a gamble here because uh, this succession and division that that will run for most of this year really takes away another year from the potential for the ANC to try and reboot themselves with a new leader. Uh, And as such, the pressure will be on any new leader by this time Mm -hmm. next year, by January Mm -hmm. 2018, uh, to try and reinvigorate the party with only a year to go until the critical national elections in 2019. It's a very tough, uncertain period for the ANC. And, of course, it also makes it a tough and uncertain period for South Africa in the process. Daniel Silke is director at the Political Futures Consultancy in South Africa, speaking to Zikona Miso. This is Africa Digest. Seventeen sixteen Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. Now all primary, secondary, high school and universities in the English speaking regions of Cameroon have kept their doors closed with all students, teachers and lecturers absent as the second term of the school year in Cameroon kicks off today. The strike in protest of what the teachers call the overbearing influence of the French language in the bilingual country has kept the children out of school for the third month now. Mogi Edwin Ginzaga reports from Bamenda, north of Cameroon. Out of the 4,000 students expected at government bilingual high school Bamenda, northwest region of Cameroon, only 17-year-old Urban Ashi showed up on the one of the second term of Cameroon's school year. He says he is afraid the teachers' strike action will compromise their education. They should give us the room to go back to school and be studying while the government and the teachers sit down in the table and discuss how the problems can be solved. Because staying and waiting that the problems should be solved before we go back to school will jeopardize our future. The teachers called the strike to protest what they call the overbearing influence of the French language in the bilingual country. English speakers constitute 20% of Cameroon's population and the constitution says English and French inherited from colonial masters should be equally important. But most official documents are only in the French language and administrators and teachers without the least understanding of the English language are sent to work in the English-speaking regions. Parent Ndip Victor says the government should listen to the teachers and solve their problems before he sends his four children to school. I'm pleading. Since the head of state is aware of all the problems, let the right people go and meet the head of state so that these problems should be solved, so that the year 2017 should go smoothly. So I'm just pleading the government to help us so that our children, Cameroonians of tomorrow, should go back to school so that this country can be stabilized and peaceful. They have asked for certain problems that should be solved and let all those problems be solved and I think we'll be in peace and our children will go back to school. But Bernard Okalia Bilai, 
governor of the southwest region has instead issued a warning to teachers should they continue to stay out of classes. He says they should not be allowed to earn a salary for work not done. We are informed that there are threats going on, but education is a fundamental right for the children. This is names of uh, teachers who fail to attend classes during the last term. If the same names come back to this office, first, they will not have their salary for the month of January. In response to the teachers' grievances, the government of Cameroon has ordered the recruitment of 1,000 bilingual teachers and transferred out of the English-speaking regions teachers who do not understand the English language. The teachers have asked for the liberation of all youths arrested during the period of the strike for refusing the singing of Cameroon's national anthem in the English-speaking regions, describing it as a foreign song. They also hoisted what they call their own national flag. In his message to Cameroonians last December 31, Cameroon's president, Paul Bia, said he was open for negotiations with the protesters, but warned that he will never accept any attempts to destabilize what he calls Cameroon's hard-earned national unity. When the minister closes the school, there's always a little bit of opening to say that if the proprietor is able to regularize the situation, then the school will be open. So it is possible that between the time that the minister closes the schools and the time that the schools really start functioning effectively, some of these proprietors might have corrected the situation and that moment the minister will say, okay, you can go ahead. But not all schools can do that. Hundreds of thousands are stranded following the measure, but it is not the first time Cameroon is sealing schools for operating in total illegality or without some of their necessary authorization documents. In 2013, 750 nursery, primary, secondary and high schools were sealed and their owners asked to provide water, toilets and playgrounds. A majority of them, according to the Teachers' Trade Union of Cameroon TAC, simply neglected the instructions and continued functioning with the protection of corrupt education officials who collect bribes from proprietors of such schools. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Yaoundé. The National Institute for Communicable Diseases, NICD, in South Africa has issued a health warning against typhoid fever following this outbreak of the disease in neighboring Zimbabwe. South Africa's health department is already on a high alert after cases of the highly infectious disease were reported in the low-income suburban of Mbare in Zimbabwe's capital, Harare. We spoke to NICD's Dr. Kerrigan McCarthy about the issue. So typhoid fever is what we call endemic in South Africa. That means it occurs naturally here sporadically. We had about 120 cases last year in total. So we get cases every year. Our reasoning and thinking behind issuing the awareness notification last week was that usually during January and February, these are the summer months, and months where people return from travel from neighboring countries, we often see an increase in the number of cases. 
and we wanted people, travellers, returning travellers and healthcare workers to be on the alert for symptoms of typhoid so that appropriate diagnostics and treatment can take place. Now, how prepared do you think the country is uh, should the disease cross borders? Yes, we have a very robust uh, communicable diseases strategy. If individuals present ill to our hospitals and have a diagnosis of typhoid, communicable diseases coordinators in each district will be notified of the case and will then do individual follow-up to the patient's family and people that they were living with or sharing meals or bathrooms with. And then the procedure is that we'll check to see if any of those contacts are carriers of typhoid. And if they are, they're easily treated with a short dose of antibiotics. Mm. And in that way, we prevent onward transmission of typhoid. Mm. And just for the benefit of our listeners, Doctor, for those who are none the wiser, how is this disease spread? And um, are there any common symptoms to look out for? And what should the general public do you know, in the event that they are presented with some symptoms? Sure. So um, typhoid is caused by a bacterium called Salmonella typhi. Um, it's transmitted by what we call fecal-oral transmission. So the organism lives in the gut. And then when people go to the toilet, their hands may become contaminated. And then if they're preparing food or if they come into contact with, with other people, they may transmit the infection. So, for example, little ones, children who develop typhoid, a mom who's uh, changing her nappy may land up acquiring typhoid. It's easily diagnosed and prevented through hand washing. So a person who washes their hands before preparing food or after going to the toilet is very easily protected. Your question related to symptoms. So typhoid has an incubation period of up to 21 days. A person may start off with sort of mild abdominal symptoms of diarrhea, body aches and pains, and then fever. And what happens is the fever becomes very high and doesn't remit, so it stays present. And so characteristically, any person who has a high fever with abdominal symptoms, initially diarrhea, then constipation, should present to a doctor or clinic for investigation. Dr. Kerrigan McCarthy is with the National Institute for Communicable Diseases in South Africa. Now, analysts say 2017 could be a slightly better year for South African consumers if the rains consistently fall throughout this month. Acre-Elsa predicts food prices could drop this year as a result to the recent rainfall. With more rainfall forecasts, things are looking up for farmers following more than two years of drought and high food prices. Head of Economic and Agribusiness Intelligence at Equibus, Wendy Lechlobo has stressed that it's all dependent on how the weather plays out in the next three weeks, Sihlobo explains. As you rightly said, we are seeing a little bit of a rainfall, particularly around the central as well as the eastern side of the country. And so far, the crops in those areas are looking fairly well. You look around the provinces of Mpumalanga, KwaZulu-Natal, and a bit of eastern Cape, eastern Free State. And luckily, even you look at the northwest, which has been very dry over the past uh, few weeks, it did receive some rainfall there and there. And we're hoping that, you know, the crops will start to also look well in those areas. But overall, 
overall to say that what will that mean for crops? You know, the official estimates for this year's crop will be out on the 26th of January. But when you're looking on in a private forecast to say what is the thinking about agriculture, it shows that the private analysts are saying that the crop could reach levels between 11.7 and 13 million tons. And that will set South Africa then to be a net exporter again of maize later on this year if that crop do materialize. Because you remember that last year we produced, like you rightly said in your introduction, that we were affected by drought and production was down at levels of 7.5 million tons. But this one now will set us up to be above our annual needs of 10.5 million tons. We will have a million or so for export markets. But all of that, for it to materialize, we need to have consistent rainfalls from now through up, up until February. After February, even if the rainfall could start to deteriorate a little bit, it would be good because February is a critical month because that's where the grain filling stages or pollination stages of the crops actually happen. But then looking at overall of this to say what does it mean for consumer? Look, for consumers, it does, of course, signal that there could be a little bit of a relief on a food inflation side. But this is not something that will happen in this month or the next one. At least maybe you could start to see a little bit of the fruits of this through the consumer prices or retail prices on the third quarter of this year because remember all of this needs to be harvested up until it's harvested it needs to go through the processing stages then only later in the year where consumers could start to feel the benefit of this and also what does it mean for the southern african region if south africa is able to produce more than enough maize no, I mean, look, when you're looking on exotic overall, South Africa produces roughly 42% of the overall maize that is produced in SADC. And if you take South Africa out of SADC and put all other countries on the side and you look at their maize imports to say, where do these guys import much of their maize? About 70% of their maize imports usually come from South Africa. So in a way, if you see a recovery in South Africa, you pretty much see a similar trend in the region. So the, what you'll be seeing in a South African basis, to some extent, you would mirror what's going on in a region. So I would safely say that if everything else goes as we expect, as the forecast showed that we will get some consistent rainfall and we get to have a good crop, certainly the Sadeq region will also benefit from that. And even on their own, they will also not get poor crops as it happened last year because some regions, for example, they are getting a little bit of some rainfall. The only country that we worry about is what's going on, for example, in Zambia where there's a lot of armyworm and it has affected roughly 55 to 60% of the, of the maize crops in there. So all of that uh, is happening in Zambia. If it's not sorted on time, then the Zambians might have a problem in there. But looking on generally in the region, I think there's going to be a little bit of an uptick than what was happening last year and also through imports from South Africa, those countries will be able to benefit. So one can safely say that 2017 promises to be a slightly better year than 2016 throughout the Southern African region. That was actually my next question to say, should we be hopeful for 2017? Because we've seen very dry 2015 and 2016. It was very difficult for consumers and the country and also the whole region. Is this a year to be hopeful that things will be better in terms of food security and also consumers being able to afford the food. Yeah, I mean, look, it promises to be a little bit of a better year. But one thing for sure, with all of that which I had said earlier, it only stands or it only holds if we consistently get rainfall up until February. 
But what we are seeing right now on the weather forecast and how the crops are looking on the ground, certainly this promises to be a slightly better year than last year. And even if then all of those forecasts which are set out, with I said, they're coming from private analysts of between 11.7 and 13 million tons, if that materializes, for sure we'll have a fairly better year. But all those benefits for consumers to really start to feel the benefit of that, it's not going to be in the first six months of this month. It might be on the third quarter of this year going forward. But I think one thing that everyone should watch on is to see how the rainfall actually spreads out for the rest of this month as well as the coming one. Then if all goes well as consistently as we are currently seeing in most parts of South Africa, then certainly this could be a better year. That's Wendy Lissi-Shobo, who's the head of Economic and Agribusiness Intelligence at Agribiz, on the line with Tutongobeni. Oh, it's 17.31 Central African time. It's now time for your news headlines. Here's Cholani Tula. Thank you, Pumalele. Good afternoon. Making headlines. South Africa's ruling ANC has berated its Women's League for endorsing Nkosazana Lamini Zuma as its presidential candidate. Ivory Coast Prime Minister Daniel Kablan Duncan has resigned and dissolved the government. And finally, a cold snap gripping Europe has killed 10 more people in Poland, stranded thousands in Turkey and brought fresh misery for migrants. For Channel Africa, I'm Chalani Tulo. Thanks, Charlene. 1732 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Now, the number of migrant and refugee deaths worldwide rose by a third last year compared with 2015. This is according to preliminary data from the United Nations Migration Agency, IOM. Almost 7,500 people on the move died or went missing in 2016. IOM Director General William Swing says the total for the last three years sits at over 18,500, describing the figure as simply shocking. Citing dangerous migrant routes across the central Mediterranean between North Africa and Europe, the agency also announced a new missing migrants project to track deaths more efficiently. Spokesperson at IOM Joel Millman has more on the increase. The migrant corridors remain extremely robust despite the efforts that both sender and destination nations are making to tamp down some of the arrivals. It, it, It seems as though it doesn't matter what governments try to do or how much money they plan to spend. Uh, this is a, a, a human phenomenon right now in this part of the century of mobility. It's unprecedented and, and thousands, literally million, millions of people are on the move. So we're going to see in an unregulated and irregular environment criminals, some dangers, some chances being taken by these thousands of migrants that result in fatalities. And we've been tracking them for three years and this is the largest number we've found yet. So you've been tracking it really systematically for the last three years. You say that routes appear to be at full capacity now all over uh, the world in five continents. That's where these uh, 7,500 deaths or near 7,500 deaths uh, have been recorded. Obviously, you're seeing um, peaks in the Mediterranean route, but not only. No, well, the Mediterranean has, has been shocking and startling and how quickly it's risen. It's almost doubled in the last two years. We, we, we count over 12,000 
over the last three years for those for that region. But we've seen similar spikes, for example, in the, what we call the Sahara North Africa region, which is a feeder into the Mediterranean. It's uh, some of those deaths are are from the larger coastal parts of of, of Africa to say to the Canary Islands, which is also a trip to Europe, but not technically the Mediterranean. So we know that that's a part of it. And also we're getting better at capturing data of of some of the the victims of dehydration or deaths by car accidents that occur in incredibly remote places in the Sahara itself. Let's maybe just drill down into that point, because you say that you're getting a lot more data from the migrants themselves who are on the move, and they're using social media to stay in contact with their families, to find other people who are also on the move, maybe from their region. And uh, when they go quiet, that's when you get contacted by the families, and that's when you realize that something bad has happened. In extreme cases, IOM gets contacted by families, but generally these families are contacting each other uh, home associations, town associations, uh, national or religious associations associated with that ethnic group. That's generally where the traffic bubbles up from. I mean, we do have cases where migrants, say in a train yard in Latin America, actually take a picture of someone who died a few minutes ago, and that gets up on, on Facebook or Twitter, or it gets into the hands of, of people with an interest, like advocates and, and uh religious workers who care about the safety of migrants, and it spreads out from there. But obviously, migrants, regardless of how poor they are or poorly educated they are, are often traveling with handheld devices now, even if it's just text messaging to their family. They want people to know that they have safely crossed the border or have made it onto a boat. Uh, it's when that traffic stops that we start getting the alerts. Mm. So with that in mind and the fact that your system's only been going for a few years now, what's the real figure? You've got 7,500 here, but you must have a, an idea of how far out you are from reality. I'm not sure we do. I mean, we know, for example, that East Asia, we're reporting three people this year. Sorry, that's three people for the whole of East Asia. Right. That's all the, all the deaths we've managed to capture, probably because we're not really systematically looking at the media. Now, an internal migrant, if, the, if, if a train has an accident, it could kill a dozen people in, in any train accident in the world. In China, it'd be a high likelihood that someone is a is a internal migrant going from a rural to an urban setting, and he gets killed or she gets killed in a train accident. I'm not certain anybody would record that as a migrant death anywhere. That would be a casualty. We have a similar problem with Mexico. Mexico doesn't characterize a national who's killed in the, during migration in Mexico as a migrant. He is a random victim of a car accident or possibly a criminal uh, assault or something. Governments tend to be very good about what's happened to their citizens once they've crossed the border. That's where their consular network comes into play. Those figures tend to be extremely accurate because that's what diplomats are charged to do. But internally, not so much. And as you say in your your latest uh, uh, data, Many routes are becoming more deadly around the world. Um, maybe you could give me details on those. The- well, let's be clear. I mean, there are places that emerge, and we write about this, that the Darien Gap in Panama this past year became very deadly. It's probably always been a dangerous place, but it wasn't seeing the migrant traffic until this year, particularly because of Cubans coming in from Ecuador or from, from the Caribbean to the South American mainland and then up through Panama and also the Haitians that uh, came to Brazil in large numbers after 2010, after the earthquake, Brazil very generously offered work visas because they anticipated with the World Cup soccer championship and also the the Olympics that they were going to need a lot of construction help 
for these big mega projects. And that all happened, and 50,000 Haitians took advantage of this opportunity. Now they're on the move, and we're seeing casualties of Haitians in Chile or in Ecuador. Uh, that's a, a brand new kind of death cluster that, that just didn't exist. So that that's there are places that are becoming evident because of trends in migration. There are others that are really long-standing, like South Asia, Pakistan, Afghanistan, across Iran and across Turkey towards Europe. You know, we know that the numbers are enormous of who's crossing. What we don't know is how many die on those routes. And so that's where we think trends in social media will help us identify these clusters, too. That is Joe Millman. He's the spokesperson at the International Office of Migration in Geneva, Switzerland, talking to UN Radio's Daniel Johnson. Imagine what it would be like to live as an aid worker or civilian in a country like Iraq, controlled by the terrorist group Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant ISIL. That's the premise of a new animated film produced by the United Nations World Food Programme, or WFP. WFP's Jonathan Dumont came up with the idea for the film entitled Living Level 3, Iraq, which began life as a graphic novel written by Joshua Dysart. Priyanka Shankar compiled this report. When Mosul fell in June of 2014, I was on my first flight to Iraq. That's the voice of Leila, a fictional character working for the World Food Program in a new animated film exploring hunger and fear in Iraq. Called Living Level 3 Iraq, the film documents the life of Leila and other civilians in Iraq when it was taken over by Islamic State militants in 2014. WFP's Jonathan Dumont produced the film. LL3 Iraq is a true story. We met some Yazidi families uh, who told us their stories. The aid worker character is a composite of several aid workers who work for WFP. Her name is Layla. She's uh, an Egyptian-American, and she has a sort of a, an inherent relationship with the characters. The title of this novel is Living Level 3 Iraq. Why such a title? What does it mean? Level 3 is the UN's denomination of a corporate emergency in the sense that it allows us to access resources to respond uh, in a quicker way. Living Level 3 means that it's how aid workers live and how they work in this environment and how they live and how they respond. So The idea was meant to encompass what happens to aid workers, to humanitarians who are working in these scenarios, whether it be Ebola or South Sudan or Iraq or Syria or El Nino or wherever there are L3s. Just a few months after the fall of Mosul. Living Level 3 Iraq was initially a short graphic novel written by Joshua Daisat. The idea was to use art and graphics to depict the life of people suffering the ill effects of insurgency. Mr. Dysart told me the project was heavily based on his personal experience visiting Iraq. On the ground, it's very intense, but you're also listening so closely and you're so present and aware and you're recording um, everything that you see and you hear because you have this really daunting task ahead of you, and that is to make a comic book about these people's lives. And the comic book, it's such a reduction of life. It's a very small little thing, and lives are big and 
in some of these instances, incredibly tragic. So you're just so aware when you're there, and I don't really pay attention to my feelings. So you know there's something gets turned off, and you hear all these stories and the responsibility of hearing these stories, of bringing all this back to the States and doing something with it that has value, it sort of makes you a little bit numb. Every time I come back, the reentry is pretty tough, and I get pretty frustrated, and I, I think I maybe experience some low-level depression, and that's hard because that's when you have to write the work. And so there's kind of an emotional trip that happens. There are a lot of documentaries out there about Iraq and life under the Islamic State. But what really makes this comic stand out and powerful? I don't know. What I tried to do was create something that would speak to people who would not normally engage with this material. And I think that comics have a visceral immediacy and a kind of a graphic excitement about them that makes people want to engage with them regardless, feel something um, they didn't intend to do, just because the material is so engaging, graphically, you know, visually. The film's release last month coincided with the Iraqi government's offensive to retake the city of Mosul from ISIL terrorists. Two future episodes are planned, but set in two other conflict zones, which have sparked humanitarian emergencies, South Sudan and Libya. Priyanka Shankar, United Nations. Hi, this is Lira, South African Afro soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, celebrating 20 years of South African freedom and democracy. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It is now time for your economics news with Wissana Matabula. In your economics news this hour, the South African Reserve Bank has announced that the, the country's net foreign reserves have fell to $40 billion US dollars in December from $41 billion in November. The fall comes as a result of a drop in gold prices and the dollar strength. The US dollar has risen further. In related news, foreign exchange reserves in China declined by $41 billion to $3 trillion in December of 2016. The Chinese Central Bank data shows that this was the sixth straight month of decline, bringing the reserves to the lowest levels since February 2011. For the whole year of 2016, the yuan depreciated 6.6% against the dollar, which is the biggest one-year loss since 1994. Analysts say 2017 could be slightly better for South African consumers if the rains consistently fall throughout this month. AgriSA predicts food prices in South Africa could drop this year as a result of the recent rainfall. With more rainfall focused, things are looking up for farmers following more than two years of drought and high food prices. Head of Economic and Agribusiness Intelligence at Agbiz, Wandi Lesklobo, has stressed that it is all dependent on how the weather plays out in the next three weeks. 
But overall, to say that what will that mean for crops, you know, the official estimates for this year's crop will be out on the 26th of January. But when you're looking on in a private forecast to say what is the thinking about agriculture, it shows that the private analysts are saying that the crop could reach levels between 11.7 and 13 million tons. And that will set South Africa then to be a net exporter again of maize later on this year if that crop do materialize. Because you remember that last Last year, we produced, like you rightly said in your introduction, that we were affected by drought and production was down at levels of 7.5 million tons. But this one now will set us up to be above our annual needs of 10.5 million tons. We will have a million or so for export markets. South Africa policy fellow at South Africa's Institute for Race Relations, uh, John Kane Behrman, says getting more investment in the mining sector in South Africa will depend on political stability. Their concerns of potential political instability as the governing ANC grapples with issues of factionalism and succession. Mining accounts for 8% of South Africa's GDP. The figure, however, understates the importance of mining in the country's economy. Kane Behrman explains. Mining procures goods and services from all the other sectors of the economy. For example, 60% of the business of Transnet Freight Rail consists of transporting coal produced by the mining industry, either internally to Eskom Power Stations or to Richards Bay for export. So the key thing is that mining procures goods and services. 85% of South Africa's electricity comes from coal that has to be mined. An economist have warned that 2017 will probably be, be, be worse for Zimbabwe than the financial difficulties, cash shortages and curtailed access to the capital that were experienced in the country last year. The silver lining is that some companies have approved new investments for 2017. Several others are struggling in, a, in, in an economy with stringent import rules that is dominated by company failures and retrenchments. Economic growth in Zimbabwe is projected to be 1.7% for 2017, which is up about 0.6% last year. That's according to Finance Minister Patrick Chinamasa. Zimbabwe's unemployment rate is uh, estimated at over 80%. Some commodities news. Oil fell by one U.S. dollar barrel. This as signs of growing U.S. production outweighed optimism that many other producers, including Russia, were sticking to a deal to cut supplies in a bid to bolster the market. A stronger U.S. dollar also weighed as the currency surge made it more expensive to hold dollar-denominated commodities. Brent crude features were down 1.8% at $56.1 a barrel in early morning trade. Financial indicators have the dollar is trading at 13.72, South African rands at 10.93, Botswana Pula and 10.84 against the Zambian Guacha. Also trading at 0.75 to the British pound and 0.90 against the euro. Commodities, gold $1,175, platinum $967 per fine ounce and the spot price of Brent crude oil is now at $56.98 per barrel. And that's your economics news. Thanks for sending some for sports news with Ned Ochimane.
Good evening, sport fans. With the latest Channel Africa Sport News at this hour, I'm Neto NETO Chamani. The President of Kenya, Uhuru Kenyatta, says the government will in the very near future establish and inaugurate the country's Heroes Council to take care of, among other legends, sports personalities who leave a mark in the annals of history. The President was accompanied by the country's First Lady, Margaret Kenyatta, on a visit to Kenyan footballing international Joe Kadenge at his home in the South Bay suburb of Nairobi. The legend received a major boost to the medical kitty amounting to 20,000 US dollars from the president. Channel Africa's Kenyan correspondent Francis Mutegi reports. Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta says the government will in the very near future establish and inaugurate the country's Heroes Council to take care of, among other legends, sports personalities who leave a mark in the annals of history. The president made the announcement late last evening when he paid a visit to ailing former Kenyan footballing international Joe Kadenge at his Mariakani estate home in Nairobi's South Bay estate. The president, who was accompanied by the first Lady Margaret Kenyatta also gave a major boost to the medical kitty of the legend with a personal donation of some 20,000 US dollars. Sport Cabinet Secretary Hassan Wario, who accompanied the first couple of Kenya, President Uhuru Kenyatta, and the country's first lady, Margaret Kenyatta, briefed the media on the slightly over 40 minutes meeting at Kadenga's house, revealing that the president had given Kadenga a comprehensive National Health Insurance Fund cover card. It was handed over comprehensive NHIF card and uh, he'll be checking in to any hospital of his preference but we prefer probably he goes to one of the major hospitals which will take care of him and the government uh, will be there to ensure that he gets all the medical cover that he requires. His Excellency lift uh, that up with two million shillings uh, just to ensure that they tidy up things uh, at home. The president granted Mzi Kadenga's wish as he visited him at his Nairobi home on Sunday after the soccer star of the 70s and 80s made this appeal last Wednesday. They should take care of the people who have actually helped this nation. The people have do, done better for the nation. Should be a, 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 should be respected. You know, should be taken care of the of, of the, the players. You know. Because they have done something for the nation and they should be looked after, be given some help. Moving on to cricket news. Two fast bowlers, a short format all-rounder, an off-spinner, a middle-order batsman and an opening batsman have decided to ply their trade in England. Kyle Abbott, Hadas Felion, David Vise and Simon Hammer, Rilly Rousseau and Stian Fanzail have all signed Colpac deals in recent months, which takes them out of the equation for selection for South Africa. Their collective contribution to the Proteas amounts to 29 tests, 71-day appearances and 56-20 games, all told that's 155 caps worth of international experience taken out of the system. Roddy Lainfeld, Colin Ingram and Richard Levy, who have all represented South Africa, have also gone the Colpac route. In tennis news, Spanish veteran Feliciano Lopez scrapped through the opening round of the ATP Auckland Classic today after a scare from local wildcard Michael Venas. With the top-ranked players at the New Zealand tournament given a bye through the second round, the lesser seeds took center stage but struggled to dominate. Lopez, seeded sixth, came from behind to grind out a 3-6, 6-4, 6-3 win over New Zealander Venus, a double specialist rated number 1,035 in the singles rankings.
And finally, Ken Ishikori has pulled out of an exhibition event in Sydney to recover from a hip injury, with the Japanese world number five reluctant to take any risks ahead of the next week's Australian Open. The world number five needed a lengthy injury timeout in the Brisbane International Men's Singles Final yesterday after drawing level in the second set against Bulgarian Grigor Dimitrov. Nishikori went on to lose the deciding set, suffering a first defeat to Dimitrov in four meetings. Yeah, I think uh, this is a great format to play. Uh, and uh, I think uh, all the fans are uh, uh, enjoying uh, this format and uh, great players are playing from uh, Australia to Kyrgios and uh, Bernie too. So think, uh, hopefully I can come back next year and uh, hope I can enjoy to, to watching uh, the match tonight. Thank you for tuning in to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. It is 17.55 Central African time. Let's check out our top stories. Nigeria's President Muhammadu Buhari is hosting his West African counterpart in a meeting aimed at resolving the political impasse in the Gambia. Elections and infrastructure development set to dominate the news in Kenya this year. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Spumelele Zondi, producer Lebo Musweu, technical producer Debo Musweu, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening. Can send us emails. We are on info at channelafrica.co.za info at channelafrica.co.za on SMS run plus 27823325905 plus 27823325905 we leave you with Judith Sepuma and Mangwane